Welcome to Hospitals in Focus from the Federation of American Hospitals. Here's your host, Chip Kahn. We continue our conversation on the social determinants of health today, focusing on the ways in which they have affected our nation's communities of color and offering approaches to mitigate disparities generally and during the COVID-19 pandemic. So it is a distinct pleasure to welcome our guest, He has had a defining academic career in public health and health equity, especially when it comes to the ethnic and racial disparities that affect the health and medical care of millions of Americans. He is also the dean at the Tulane University School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine, from which I received my MPH, I'm embarrassed to say 40 years ago. As a proud alum, I am particularly appreciative of the health policy focus he brings to the school and his innovative and forward-looking leadership at the oldest school of public health in the United States. I am confident we will all have many takeaways from the interview today. Dr. Thomas Leviste, thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me, Chip. Tom, uh, just to get started, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Sure, sure. So I I come to this, my new position, well, I guess it's relatively new, it's been two years now, as Dean of the uh, School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine at Tulane, after spending 25 years at Johns Hopkins at the School of Public Health there, and two years at George Washington University School of Public Health. I'm a medical sociologist, and my work is focused on racial disparities in health, with a particular emphasis on policy as a as a tool for impacting the health of populations. Tom, historic racism in our nation's medical care and research has fostered distrust of American medicine in the black community. How successful have we been at moving beyond the effects of systemic racism in recent years? Well, certainly, I think it would be accurate to say that we've moved beyond many of the most abhorrent your practices in, in healthcare that we had in the past, such as racially segregated wards, racially segregated blood supplies, even. And a lot of, a lot of that sort of thing we've moved away from. Uh, we certainly have made tremendous improvements there. But, you know, we still have, we still have a ways to go. There are still problems in the healthcare system. You know, when you look at the number of African Americans going into, into the health professions, not just as physicians, but in all areas, you know, they still are dramatically underrepresented, and we haven't made much progress even in the last 50 years in that area. So we've, I'd say it's a mixed mixed uh, record. We've made some improvement, but, you know, I think we still have a ways to go. You know, what you're describing is so apparent uh, with COVID-19, even where we have been able to move beyond bias in the care, there's still that residual distrust, which is, as you point out, really often justified. How can healthcare providers assist in dispelling these concerns or work to mitigate these concerns uh, for the most vulnerable in our communities? So, you know, the issue of, of trust, and this is just human nature, it takes a long time to build trust. It doesn't take very much at all to destroy that trust. So I think it's a uh, building the trust in the African American community among uh, the healthcare industry, I think that's a journey. That's something that's going to take time. There certainly has been a long history of untrustworthy behavior. Many, many cases, things that have happened that generated the distrust. So I, I think it's just a matter of time. 
time and also consistently being trustworthy in the things that we do. Tom, you have developed an innovative approach to address the distrust factor and other adverse effects of disparities. Would you tell us a bit about your program, The Skin You're In? The Skin You're In is a, it's a multimedia health education project that began first, it began as a book that I wanted to write. And the idea was to write a book that would take all of that great information that's been generated on uh, racial disparities in health, but is locked away in the in the uh, university library in academic journals that most people can't access. And I wanted to take that content and put it into a digestible format where people could, could understand it. A friend uh, suggested that more than a book was needed, but rather maybe a film would be a better way to go. So I decided that I would make a documentary film on this topic and, uh, under the name The Skin You're In. And then ultimately, the film project kind of morphed into a series because there actually was too much content to fit into one film. So now it's become this multimedia project, which is a book, documentary film, website, social media, where we try to put out authoritative and accurate information targeting African-Americans with you know, accurate information. And now we've been focusing almost exclusively on COVID for this year. That's great. Can I ask real quickly, how can people find you on the internet or in social media? In social media, we do have the handle T-S-Y-I, which is the initials for the skin you're in. So if you search for T-S-Y-I on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram, you'll you'll get us. Great. Thanks. I'm sure you were not surprised by what happened with COVID. This issue of racial disparities uh, goes all the way from susceptibility to illness through the entire continuum of care for disease. Why did we not see this coming? I think it was predictable. And I, I saw it coming. I said, but, but what I didn't see coming was the magnitude of the disparities. The disparity is actually bigger in, in terms of uh, the death rate is actually bigger than I thought it would be. So I think that's uh, that might be a surprise to, to others as well. But when you when you think about an infectious disease like this, it spreads on the basis of physical proximity. And that's really it. So if you're close to someone who is infected, your odds of inf being infected increases. Right. It's, it's quite it's that simple. So the country is is segregated on race. So who are you interacting with most, most commonly? You're interacting with people of your same racial ethnic group. And that goes for every ethnic group in the United States because of racial segregation. And then when you look at the occupations that African-Americans are more likely to be in, they're the occupations that we've now come to call essential workers. You know, the people that do the jobs that allow others to work at home on Zoom and not have to go out and be at risk. So it's the people that are bringing you your, bringing food on Uber Eats. It's the people who work at the supermarket. It's the people who have the jobs that require them to go out. Those are the people that are gonna be disproportionately infected. And then once you're infected, you're going home to your neighborhoods, which tend to be racially segregated. So the people that are at risk of being infected by you are gonna be people of your same racial ethnic group. And I think that's the genesis of the disparity. You know, you implied or, or, or alluded here to a, that really shocking statistic 
that one in 1,000 black Americans have died from COVID. Uh, black America, Americans are much more likely to be hospitalized for COVID and clearly suffer worse outcomes. How can we do a better job for black Americans? You know, I think it's a key question. I, I wish I had a simple and easy answer. I mean, early on in the pandemic, one of the things that we faced, especially in social media, was false information. Information that was being targeted to African-Americans. One of the early myths that came around was that African-Americans were immune. Was you know They were immune to, to COVID-19, which to me was just absolutely bizarre. How could any human being be immune you know, by, def- by just because of their skin color? But you know, that sort of thing you know, may have slowed reaction in the black community, and maybe some of the early infections occurred there. We also had some, I think we've had a lot of uh, bad health communication coming from the federal government. I mean, terminology like social distancing, social distances, just a horrible health communications term. And, 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 uh, and Chip, as one of our MPH alumnus, I hope that you would, you would know to do better in health communications. But we're not asking people to be socially distant. We don't want anybody to be. In fact, we need people to be socially connected if we're going to maintain civil society. What we want is for people to be physically distant. So social distancing is not even, it's not even an accurate term to describe what we want. And it actually describes the opposite of what we want. So, and this is just one example, Operation Warp Speed, horrible terminology. So Operation Warp Speed is the the government's program, uh, well, it's a public-private partnership to accelerate the development of a vaccine. Well, the last thing you want to do for a, a society that is already skeptical of vaccines is to emphasize the speed at which you are creating this vaccine, but you call it Operation Warp Speed. So you could go, I could go on with other examples of kind of really bad communication. And in some cases, communication that targeted African-Americans. The, the Surgeon General early on was, was uh, warning people not to purchase masks, not to use masks which is, of course, the complete opposite of what we should have been telling people. And then when we started to learn about the disparities, he started saying that the disparities existed because of underlying health conditions in African-Americans, the high rates of obesity and hypertension and diabetes. And if African-Americans just did a better job of taking care of themselves, they wouldn't have this problem. Of course, that doesn't make any sense because down here in Louisiana, where I live, you know, whites have very high rates of obesity, hypertension, and diabetes also. And the disparity, the race disparity in those conditions is not nearly big enough to explain the COVID disparity, right? So it, clearly, it couldn't possibly have been the underlying health conditions. But yet that, that myth continues to circulate. You know, you still see that out there. So I, I think that the start to how we do better for African Americans is we start with being more thoughtful about uh, the health communications what we're communicating to African-Americans and really to all Americans and, and uh, what language we use in that communications. I guess beyond failing Public Health 101, as you just described, <laughs> yeah. what are the key issues that you think have emerged for communities of color from this pandemic that need to be addressed by governmental action, by public policy? So I talked about occupations, right? And people in different occupations are at different levels of risk. And African-Americans are more likely to be 
in those occupations that are at risk. But it's not only occupation, it's also housing and housing density. You know, African Americans are more likely to live in urban environments and uh, more highly dense, population dense communities, which also accelerates the spread of this virus. So when you look at these structural factors, you know, I, I made a comment the other day uh, in another, another news report that, that this disparity is a function of sociology and economics, not biology and genetics. So if it's a sociological or an economic problem, it can be addressed with public policy, right? That, that's, that's the way we affect public policy. So, you know, we could, we could work on in, increasing access to health care. You look at many of the states here in the South, uh, Louisiana, Louisiana being an exception, but many of the states here in the South have refused to expand Medicaid. Well, these are also the states with the largest black population, so African Americans are disproportionately impacted by states that have refused to expand Medicaid. So you, you don't expand Medicaid, you have fewer people with access to health care than you otherwise would have, and you're in the middle of a pandemic, and people are going to get sick, and they're going to show up in your emergency room anyway, whether they're insured or not. So I think just universal access to health care. And, and I'm not saying that from the standpoint of, you know, arguing for a single payer or any particular approach to getting there. But I think getting there is what's key. And I think that would help all populations, including African-Americans. Also, you brought up warp speed. Hopefully, there will be success in the near future with the vaccine. But considering the unfortunate historical precedent, we must be concerned that our black community may not be treated equally when it comes to the vaccine. How can we make sure that the vaccine is accepted by the black community uh, who have been so hard hit by the pandemic and make sure at the same time that the vaccine is fairly allocated once it arrives? This is a really difficult nut to crack. I'm, I'm involved in several projects where we're trying to work on this issue. I, I, I mean, one of the things is that I do is I'm the chair, co-chair of the uh, Louisiana Governor's Task Force on Health Equity and COVID-19. And one of the things we're looking at is this, this very issue you're talking about. You know, the African-American community, the distrust of vaccines in general, the distrust of healthcare, the fact that when we began to uh, have test testing capability, African-American communities did, was not first in line to get testing, but now there are many who are arguing that now that we've that we're developing a vaccine, they should be first in line to get the vaccine. And many African Americans feel that that's because they want to test the vaccine and make sure once they deploy it in a large population of people, they want to make sure that it's safe. This is a huge, huge problem. I think the way that we're going to address this issue in time is um, through trusted messengers who can speak to the black community and convince the community that it is important that African-Americans be involved in the uh, phase three clinical trials, because you want to have a representative population of people in the trial, a population that represents the people who will actually be using the vaccine. And, you know, you'll need trusted messengers to communicate to African-Americans that the, you know, once the phase three trial is completed, that the trial was done correctly and that it's safe and effective. And um, 
again, we're really not doing a great job there because the potential trusted communicators for the black community are not really able to access Operation Warp Speed because so much of what's happening there is being done in silos and in secret. So I think it's going to have to be getting trusted communicators to be willing to put their credibility on the line to communicate to African-Americans and convince them that they're to use this vaccine. And that only happens if you can gain the trust of those trusted communicators. You mentioned that you're co-chair of the Louisiana Governor's Task Force on COVID and Health Equity. We just talked about the vaccine. Beyond that, what are the major features of the task force's agenda? And how responsive has the public and the state government been to that agenda as you've moved along? The task force has, I say, quite a broad agenda. We've been given a very broad charge. And we have a set of subcommittees that are looking into a wide variety of things. You know, we have, we're looking at prisons, uh, nursing homes, other congregate living situations. We're looking at, you know, issues in healthcare resource distribution, testing, making sure that the testing is um, adequate in all communities, particularly in rural communities here in Louisiana. It's a, just a comprehensive set of things looking at economic impact of the pandemic. And to this point, we, we have made a set of recommendations to the governor. I know that the governor is looking at those recommendations. He has communicated that back to us. We uh, met earlier this week with representatives from the health department. They are responding to the to our uh, recommendations. And so over the next week or so, I think we'll we'll start to hear more about how the governor is going to re- respond. But uh, to this point, I would say that they have been responsive uh, to, to what we've been um, providing them. That, that's real encouraging. Let me, let me touch on this sort of state-local issue and just ask you, Tom, and this will be our concluding question. As a public health policy expert, and, and we have you know, heard some of your views uh, a few moments ago on communication at least, do you think we need a clearer national strategy overall against COVID? And, and if we did that, what role do you think, and I know you've done a lot of thinking about this, should the states play? And what should this sort of federal state mix be if, if, if frankly, uh, our leaders had taken a public health 101? Well, I, I'll give you my off-the-cuff flippant answer first, and then I'll give you a more thoughtful <laughs> answer. So uh, imagine if... December 7th, 1941, the Japanese uh, military attacked Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, and the president said, it's the responsibility of the governor of Hawaii to address this attack. This is a national, international, global tragedy that requires a global response, not just a national response. And we have pulled out of the World Health Organization an organization that was set up to respond to global health pandemics, to which the United States is one of the founding members. That's my, that's the short answer, right? The, the longer answer is, you know, I was, I was on NPR back in probably March, and they were asking about a national response. And my comment was, look, if we continue to do this on a state-by-state basis, we're going to play a macabre game of whack-a-mole. We're going to have a flare, uh, you know, outbreak in one state, and once that state is able to get that outbreak under control, it's going to flare up in the next state, 
And then once that state is under control, then it's going to come back to the previous state. And um, that is precisely what has happened and what we're doing because we don't have a coordinated national response. This pandemic is going to be prolonged. It's going to be more, diffi uh, more difficult to get under control. And um, this is going to be more carnage and more loss of life that could be avoidable if we were coordinated in the way that we're responding. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. I, we deeply appreciate your insights. We appreciate all you're doing. And, and I know our audience will want to learn more about the skin you're in. So to learn more about the skin you're in, visit tsyi.org or at tsyiblk health on Twitter. And hopefully in the future, the country is going to do a little better. We really need your guidance and the guidance of other leaders in the public health community across the country. And I, again, want to just express you know, my deep appreciation as a Tulane alum uh, from the School of Public Health for all you've done to improve the school. And with that, look forward to uh, working with you and, and talking with you in the future about these kinds of issues. Well, thank you. It's always a pleasure. Good to talk to you again, Chad. Thanks for listening to Hospitals in Focus from the Federation of American Hospitals. Learn more at FAH.org. Follow the Federation on social media at FAH Hospitals and follow CHIP at CHIPCon. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Hospitals in Focus. Join us next time for more in-depth conversations with healthcare leaders.